Well, good morning, everybody. I'm not sure you're awake yet this morning. Okay, so one of you is, and that's really scary to have a room full of people and only one person awake, especially if it's not me. Uh, This morning we're wrapping up a three-week series called Live Free, so I get to back clean up this morning and correct all the mistakes that Darren and Gordon made, which will be really easy because they haven't made any. Um, And I'm going to focus us in on 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, sometimes we come to a passage in the Bible, and it's really important to fully understand a passage that we get the context in which it was written. In fact, sometimes it's important to really understand the context, because if you don't, you completely miss what the author was trying to say. Uh, It's kind of like your favorite TV shows do. You know, when in the first two minutes of the show, they fill you in on what's happened in the previous weeks. You know, you you with me? You tracking? So let's just consider this to be like, you know, previously in 2 Corinthians. Okay? So that's what I'm going to do for a couple of minutes here. In in, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 11 and 12, Luke tells us that there were two significant events that were taking place in world history that had a significant impact on Christians everywhere. But they had a very profound impact on Christians in the city of Jerusalem. First, there was a famine that was taking place worldwide. It was hitting the Roman Empire extremely hard during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. During that famine, the Roman government was very tightly controlling all of the food resources worldwide. And they were very tight with the resources, for a reason you'll see in a moment, in the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, for the first time since Jesus' death, the Roman authorities were taking direct and violent action against the Christian church. The Jews who lived in the city of Jerusalem and around the city of Jerusalem, the Jews who had been a pain to the Roman authorities since long before the birth of Jesus, loved that the Roman government was persecuting Christians. They took great delight in this. Now, Herod Agrippa, who was the Roman ruler over the territory that included the city of Jerusalem, loved this newfound favor with the Jewish rulers. So he not only withheld additional food from the Jewish Christians, because he could, but he stepped up his persecution against them under his authority as a Roman official. So now you have the church in the city of Jerusalem not only being withheld their rightful food, and then some, but being persecuted extremely by the Roman government. You tracking with me? It was really hard for the Christians in Jerusalem. Against that backdrop, the Apostle Paul was asking Christians everywhere, but specifically the Christians who lived in the city of Corinth, to consider giving an offering to help the Christians in Jerusalem. Apparently, from what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, he had sent one of his helpers, Titus, to the city of Corinth to make a personal plea. And the church there was so moved that they committed to taking a special offering, raising money to help them. One year later, Paul wrote this letter. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he he says he's now going to send Titus to collect that offering. 
Now, if you don't have all that backstory, and you just open up and you read 2 Corinthians 9, it sounds a little like a mafia hit job. Paul writes there and he says, essentially, I'm sending the guys to pick up the money you promised. That's the best Italian I can do, okay? I'm sending my guys. You know, I mean, it sounds like a strong-arm tactic by Paul to collect money from this little church in Corinth that's not very old. But that's not Paul's intent. What he's really trying to do is send this letter ahead of these men to encourage them to follow through on the generosity that he's seen in their hearts already when he was with them. So with that background and that understanding, let me read to you now what Paul wrote to them about their generosity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, I don't really need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help. And I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia about you in Greece and how ready you were to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you are re- really are ready, as I've been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all, after all that I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. And then it's like Paul stops. And he reads back over what he's written, and he realizes that the tone of what he's written could be misunderstood. And then the tone of his letter changes, and he begins to write about why we should be generous. And he says, but I want this to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't do it reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seeds for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. I think Paul was trying to teach these young Christians in Corinth, and I think us, some very important lessons. Lessons that are not primarily about our money but they're about how we experience God. And here's what Paul knew of God and how he challenges us to experience God when it comes to this idea of generosity. Not money, generosity. 
First, he says, God generously meets all of our needs. All. There's no mincing words. Paul's right out with it in verse 8. God will generously provide everything you need in life. So much so that all of your needs will be met and you'll have enough left over to share with everybody else. It wasn't Claudius, Paul was saying, who was going to meet your needs in Corinth. And it's not a government bailout program that's going to meet our needs in the 21st century. It's God's generosity that will meet our needs. And this generosity of God is a common theme throughout all of Scripture. Romans 5, Paul writes, We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through His Holy Spirit. If you go back to the Psalms, David writes, The heavens belong to the Lord, but He's given the earth to all of humanity. Every time I travel to a new region of our country or the world, when I'm fortunate enough to do that, I am overwhelmed by God's generosity to us. Do you ever stop and think about that? Do you stop and think about how generous God was just in the single act of creation? He could have created one kind of tree and that would have been enough to meet the needs on our planet. Just one. But he created so many different kinds of trees that are all over our planet and are beautiful to look at. He could have created a single kind of flower or a single kind of fruit. What if God had created only one kind of vegetable? What if that vegetable was Brussels sprouts? You with me? Who likes Brussels sprouts? Yeah. You guys can leave now. I mean, seriously. God, in His goodness, created more than Brussels sprouts. He gave us broccoli, too. I'm not sure how that's a plus, but He did. But in the act of creation, God unleashed His own creativity, and the Bible said He did that just for our enjoyment. The amazing diversity of wildlife on our planet, the amazing glorious sunsets He gives us every night, the vistas throughout our planet, all of this creation was given to us to enjoy every single day just out of the goodness of His heart. And beyond that, out of His generosity, the Bible says, God meets our deep needs every day for sustenance, for shelter, and even for salvation. Paul reminded the Corinthians church just in chapter 8, Verse 9, he says, And you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also knew in this area of generosity that God challenges us to be generous because of his generosity towards us. Paul spoke to his young protege, Timothy, that he was training, who was working with the church. He wrote to him and said, Command these young Christians you're working with to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. It's just something God wants us to grow in. Now, let's be honest. Some of us are naturally generous, right? How many of you would say you're naturally generous? Not very many of you. This is not going to go well today. (laughs) Some of us are naturally generous. Some of us are not. My wife is one of those. Uh, The naturally generous. She would give and give and give. It's been amazing to watch her give things through the years. The rest of us have these narratives that run in our head that prevent us from being generous. 
Narratives like, God helps those who help themselves. Now, just a side note, that's not in the Bible. That actually was Ben Franklin who said that. And he didn't write any part of the Bible. He wrote some things in the margin, but he didn't write the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Or maybe your narrative in your head is, if I give it away, I will have less. Or a third one that's really common is, what's mine is mine to use for my pleasure. We have these things that run in our head, and however they got embedded in our brain, they really run contrary to what the Scriptures teach us about the nature of God and how He would have us to live. God practices generosity towards us, and what these narratives lead us into is a mentality of scarcity. They reinforce in our brain this idea that we have to hoard and control our resources. I can't possibly be a generous person because I may need someday that money or that object I'm about to give away. It's scarcity that those things reinforce. When Paul was writing to this church in Corinth, I think he had that tension of scarcity and generosity in his mind. He was writing to a church that was pretty well off financially. He was writing to a church that was in an economic boom town. But he was thinking about a church that was very poor and yet very generous. I'm convinced that if you research the passage, you'd agree with me. He was thinking about this poor little group of Christians in a town called Philippi. A church that supported Paul for 18 months while he was building this church in Corinth. And they supported Paul not because they were wealthy. They weren't. Their story tells us that they lived in extreme poverty. They were suffering from the same famine, the same persecution from the Roman government that the church in Jerusalem was suffering from. But in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says that this church gave far more than they were able to give. This church did it on their own, of their own free will. And he goes on to say, now you're going to think I'm lying to you, but 2 Corinthians 8 says this little church in Macedonia, this, this church in Philippi, actually begged Paul for the opportunity to give to the church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? A church that begged a pastor for the opportunity to give. Something's wrong with that picture. I've never run into a church like that. But that church understood generosity. They gave, and they got so much of a blessing from it, they begged for the opportunity to contribute more to the cause. Now let me be honest about this in my own life. This idea of generosity isn't something I can stand in front of you and say, I've been a generous person all my life. I've had to grow in this, and I'm not there yet. My wife has had to drag me, kicking and screaming, into generosity. You can see heel marks in our house where she's drugged me into generosity. But I would tell you that in this year, 2010, in what we thought would be the most difficult year financially for us, we have committed to being generous. And I'm learning. And this year, the words in 2 Corinthians 9 have been proven to be true in our lives. We have always had everything we've needed and plenty left over to share with others when we've been generous. So I would just say to you, try it. Put God to the test. 
He promises. See if his promises are true. Try being generous and just see what our generous God does as your generosity increases towards others. Go ahead. I dare you. I double dog (laughs) dare you. And then thirdly, Paul knew that when we do this, God will bless our generosity. He will. I was with a friend this week, Jeff, who lives in North Carolina. And I hadn't seen Jeff for a while, so we were catching up on our lives and what's going on. And what he shared with me confirmed verses 10 and 11 in 2 Corinthians 9. Paul says, in the same way God will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. Jeff ran a successful criminal law practice in North Carolina for a couple of decades. But he'd always dabbled in ministry. Always had. He'd always wanted to plant a church. And so a couple of years ago, he and his wife Leanne decided they would plant a church in the town where they lived. 21 months ago, they launched the church, and in January of this year, he closed his law practice and went on salary with the church. I don't know how much a criminal law attorney makes, but I'm guessing it's more than the $35,000 with no benefits that he takes from his church. So he shut his law practice. He could do that. He can take that salary with no benefits because his wife has a good job and benefits, but still, they significantly reduce their income. Jeff and Leanne have always been very generous people. And even though their income has changed, they've remained generous. A couple weeks ago, Jeff went out to pick up the mail in the mailbox at their house. And he did what I do. He just started opening the mail as he walked back into the house. One of the envelopes he opened uh, had a check in it from an account that was still being settled from his old law practice 11 months later. And in it was a check for $10,000. Let me just stop and ask you, if you got your mail tomorrow and there was a check for $10,000 in it, what would you do? Buy a car? Take a trip. Jeff walked in the house and looked at his wife and said, I just have a real solid conviction from God. We need to give this away. And so they did. That next day, they wrote a check for $10,000 and gave it away. Two days later, Jeff got a phone call from his mother. So Jeff, um, an aunt, he named the aunt. He'd never been especially close to her. He knew her. It wasn't like it was his favorite aunt. Had died. Her estate had been settled. And for some reason unknown to him, a part of her estate had been left to Jeff. It had gone through probate court. All been settled. Check was in the mail for Jeff. You want to guess for how much? thousand dollars 
You know, you can call that coincidence if you want. I don't think it is. I look at that and I call it God's providence. So that Jeff and Leanne can continue to be generous in every way. And I think it's just an example of how God's economy works. Not every time, not dollar for dollar. But in some incredible and amazing ways, I think God makes it possible for people who have margin in their checkbook and in their life, who work at this idea of being generous people, to continue to be generous. You don't need $10,000 to be a generous person. And if you think my message this morning has been all about money, you've kind of missed the point. There are ways to be generous with what you have, and that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9. Start now with what you have. I had a young couple come up to me earlier this year. They were at a restaurant. They'd had dinner the night before, and the waiter asked them as they were leaving, would you like to purchase some gift certificates? And they did. They brought two gift certificates to me and said, we just have this sense from God that there are some couples in the church with financially tough times who probably could use a night out. We don't want to know who these go to, but you decide. Bless two couples at Westridge with a nice night out and just tell them it's a gift from God. That's a generous heart. You can start small. If you drive into the city tomorrow, you can choose to go through the coin booth for the toll. Pay the toll of the person behind you. Cost you 40 or 75 cents, 80 cents in the cash lane. Bless somebody with your generosity. Drive away slowly and watch them argue with the toll person. But bless them. Go to Starbucks or Caribou tomorrow and buy the coffee of the next person in line. Or do it in the cafe this morning. Just wait for me to get there after you. Rake somebody's leaves. Shovel the snow off their driveway this winter. Be generous. You got something in your house you don't need? Don't sell it. Give it away. The Bible says that when you develop this generous spirit, two things will happen. Your example of generosity will radically affect the people with whom you're generous. and, And your heart will grow to become more generous, more like the heart of God. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm a little tired and really sick of all the statistics on the news these days about foreclosures and joblessness and the economic downturn, what's working, what's not, where we're headed. I don't think CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox News, or anybody else out there really knows what's up in the next three years and what's going to pull us out of this mess. Do you? All they can really do is paint a picture of the ugliness that's out there right now in our world. And it's pretty ugly, I'll give you that. But what I think most of us need right now is something to hang on to in the hard times. Some glimmer of hope, something to believe in, in the hard times. 
The church that supported Paul while he was in Corinth, that little church in Philippi, had something to believe in. They found something in worse times than we're in. According to Paul, they were facing famine. They were facing starvation. They were facing persecution, extreme poverty. They found something, someone to believe in. And out of that came incredible joy and generosity. They found a way out. Someone to believe in. They did. How about you? What are you hanging on to in these hard times?